Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you once again as we turn back to the prophecies behind the biblical story of Christmas. As we've been looking at the Gospels the last couple of weeks on Sunday nights, we've been seeing the, the story, both familiar and unfamiliar, that we find about what happens at Christmas. We looked the first week at Mark and, and how that wasn't exactly what we normally expect from Christmas and the Christmas story because it was zooming right into the ministry of Jesus and, and, and the call to repentance and so on. La last night, we, we looked at the Gospel of Matthew and thought about the challenges Joseph faced to be faithful. In both, though, we find ourselves turning then back to the prophecies we find in the Old Testament because the, the gospel writers remind us time and again that the things that happen in Jesus' life are foretold. They're, they're not unexpected. They're not unplanned. They're exactly what God intended. And tonight, as we, we turn back again to Isaiah, we're going to be thinking about how the prophet Isaiah foretold of the coming of Jesus and, and how, as Joseph wrestles with what's going on, that he's wrestling with watching the fulfillment of a prophecy from long ago. But he wasn't the first person to wrestle with that prophecy. King Ahaz was. And so as we think about this, let's come before God and ask that as these two very different men wrestled with this prophecy, and we today wrestle with God's promises, that we would be receptive to what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for giving us your promises. Lord, as we wrestle in our own lives to understand how you are working, would you help us to see your work clearly, to trust in it confidently, and to watch with joy as we see what you are doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to turn back to Isaiah 7 tonight. Perhaps the most familiar, most famous prophecy of the coming Messiah and when we get to the part that is most familiar, it is immediately going to jump out, Isaiah 7.14. But we need to understand the context behind it, because it doesn't say in Isaiah, when we turn there, here are the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. It doesn't say something like that. What does it say? It says that there's a threat of war. That Ahaz is potentially in trouble. What does Ahaz encounter? What's he struggling with? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 7, starting with verse 1, and understand that a little bit better. We see in verse 1, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jazhab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, and the fierce anger of Rezin of, and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. 
For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Well, that's a lot to unpack. And, and let's just think about this for a moment before we go too far. What is the setting that we find ourselves in here? Well, we, we see the rise of different empires. And we're situated in a time where the, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. You have the kingdom of Judah in the south. And that's the, the better of the two, so to speak, but often unfaithful. Ahaz is an unfaithful king, but a descendant of David. And then you have the northern kingdom, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Samaria, that's broken off and is even more unfaithful. Well, Samaria wants to attack Judah and have a puppet king there, and they've aligned themselves with Syria to do so. And so Ahaz finds himself in a situation of waiting, trying to understand what in the world should he do. Now, we thought about waiting last night with Joseph, and if we think again just briefly about Joseph's situation, he, he finds out that Mary's expecting a child. It's not his child. He, he hasn't even gotten to marry her yet. He doesn't know what to make of this, and he has to decide what to do. We talked about the challenges of waiting in faithfulness. Well, Ahaz has that challenge too, but he's going to come up with a different solution to it. Joseph, we see, looks to God's law and tries to say, okay, here's the problem. What can I do that is most faithful in this moment? And he decides, before he even hears from the angel, I'm at least going to show mercy to Mary by divorcing her quietly, not creating a spectacle. Ahaz doesn't turn to the Lord, though. He doesn't turn to God's law. What does he do? He looks around and says, okay, so, so Israel wants to attack. Syria wants to attack. I have these enemies here I need to deal with, and so I am going to find a bigger enemy, someone who can attack them, to protect me. And that's exactly what he's looking to do. He's going to turn to the Assyrian Empire, because he thinks that he can turn to some of these other powerful leaders in the region and seek salvation from them. That's not ultimately going to work out well for him. We'll get to that in a moment. But what we see over and over again with these bad kings is that they frequently turn to other human beings, wicked human beings, thinking that they're strong enough that they'll protect them from other wicked human beings who presently seem to be the threat. And here's something that we need to learn as Christians and really absorb, which is whenever our solution to protect ourselves and to protect God's people is to turn to wicked people in hopes that some wicked people will protect us from other wicked people, we're not going in the right direction. But Ahaz here wants to pretend that he's actually doing a righteous thing, that here he is, the, the descendant of David, someone called to faithfulness, and in that moment, in that calling to be faithful, that he is fulfilling it. That what he's doing is a fulfillment of it, that he's somehow seeking to do the duty that God has given him. And I think in Ahaz here in this moment, what we see is that he desires to be seen as pious, but he doesn't actually desire to do righteousness. And that can be a huge problem for all of us, because oftentimes when we say we want people to see us as righteous, when we say we want to be righteous, what are we really thinking? We're, we're not thinking in terms of, I want to do what's pleasing to God. What we're saying is, I want people to think that I'm doing righteous things and look up to me. And I believe that's where we find Ahaz here. 
Because here it is, Ahaz is frightened to death of what's happening. He's trying to figure out what alliances he can form to, to defeat the enemy, the, those who want to attack him. And yet he's not willing to trust and to listen to God. Take a look at Isaiah 7, verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? What's Ahaz doing here? Well, it actually sounds pretty pious, doesn't it? Isaiah says to, to Ahaz, not only are, are, are these things I've just told you, these promises of what's going to happen to Israel and to, to Syria, not only are these things going to happen, are, are you're going to be protected by the Lord, but I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to, to, to fear what's going to happen. And the Lord wants to assure you that it really is going to happen. And, and so there's several spectacular things actually happening here. In this promise, notice here, first, the Lord speaks through Isaiah to Ahaz that he should ask a sign of the Lord, it says, your God, his God, that that God is allowing Ahaz to think of him as his own God. Even though Ahaz has already been a wicked king, he's already unfaithful, the Lord says, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Ahaz has an opportunity to, to live as a son of David, as someone who's an heir to the promise, as someone who who belongs to God here. But God doesn't stop there. Imagine if God said what comes next to you. That you can ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Imagine that that you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do with your life. You're trying to figure out what the faithful step next is. And God says to you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to solve everything you're worried about. It's all going to be taken away. And not only is it all going to be taken away, I want you to ask me a sign, and it can be the biggest, most spectacular sign imaginable. I want you to ask me for a sign. Let me prove my faithfulness to you. Do something spectacular so you know I'm going to work. What does Ahaz say? Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. And and in this, Ahaz seems to be referring to, Back to Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And we see time and again where Israel tests the Lord in, in unfaithful ways. But the problem is Ahaz is reciting a scripture but not listening to what God's actually saying to him in the moment. While we shouldn't demand tests of the Lord, while we shouldn't put the Lord our God to the test in our own human understanding. If God says, ask for a sign, then you should ask for a sign. The, the, the key thing is, we should be faithful to God. And in our normal human way, when we say, God, I want you to prove to me that you're going to be faithful. And we're not willing to just trust in him. We're saying, I don't really want to, to, to put too much at risk. I want you to do the, the heavy lifting, God. And of course, indeed he does. But we're saying, but that's not enough. I want even more. I want you to somehow prove to me that you're really working, God. And... A lot of times we tie that into things where we'd like to veer away from where God has clearly made it his calling for our lives to be. And sometimes that's 
more discerning what's going on in our lives, but a lot of times it's even simpler than that. His word says we shouldn't do something, or his word says we should do something. We say, well, God, if you really want me to do that in this case, if you really want me to love my neighbor in this case, if you really want me to flee this or that sin or temptation in this case, then do something big so I know that you're really meaning in this case. Otherwise, we're going to assume it's an exception. That's clearly sin. We shouldn't do that. What is, what is Ahaz facing here? It's not anything like that. Instead, God is speaking to Ahaz directly through the prophet, and, and Ahaz is receiving this communication, and he chooses to say, I'm not going to ask the Lord, my God, for a sign, even if he tells me to. That's a totally different thing. But it sounds pious. I, I watched a, a fascinating report a few months ago on cars that have been flooded. And every year it seems like someplace has a disastrous flood. And, and and some of those flooded areas are going to have car dealers, inevitably. And and in those car dealers, what do we find? We find all kinds of cars that, that, that were ready to go. Brand new cars, nice used cars that then have water damage. And especially today with cars being so computerized and dependent on, on electrical functioning to just do almost anything. You can't even steer without a computer, it seems like. With all that going on, a flooded car may not have been good 15, 20, 30 years ago, but it's really bad now. And yet, people want to sell those cars. So what do they do? They they take the cars, they clean them up, they, they make sure the paint on the outside looks good, they make sure the carpet and the upholstery looks good and smells good, everything looks good that you can see, and they go and they sell those cars. And so this report was suggesting what you need to do is know where you can pull down the carpet inside the car and look to see if there's rust or, or dirt underneath. Know where you can can look under the, the plastic trim and, and so on. Where to look under the wheel wells. All these sorts of things. The places that, that you don't immediately see. The places that, that don't normally get cleaned up after a flood. But the places that will reveal, yes indeed, even if the title is clean, that this car isn't genuinely clean. That it isn't really a car you should buy because it's been flooded. I thought that was kind of interesting because you think about it, if you go and look at a car, say you're you're looking for a used car and you pull into a lot and there's a car that looks virtually new and, it, and the carpet is spotless and the interior smells nice. It doesn't smell like cigarette smoke. It doesn't smell like old food. It doesn't smell like anything other than a nice car. Maybe it even has a scent close to a new car aroma. And, and you breathe that in and you take it for a drive and it seems to drive okay. We think, oh, this is good. And yet there might be things going wrong underneath that are going to cause long-term problems. All kinds of nasty rust and, and computers that are going to fail because they've gotten wet and they're going to cost a fortune to fix. All these sorts of things. And so the outside of the car looks good. The, the interior, still basically the outside of the car, looks good. What's happening inside, in the heart of the car? Well, it's rusting away. It's corroding away. It's going to fail. Ahaz looks like he's doing something righteous. He's polished himself up, even though he's an impious king, a, a king that isn't really seeking after the Lord. What has he done here? He he puts on a nice coat of wax and, and removes some carpet stain and says, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to prove my faithfulness by quoting scripture and showing how I'm not going to fall into this trap of, of asking the Lord for a sign. But in his seemingly pious act, he's actually demonstrating all the more his unrighteousness. Because while in an unprompted setting, it would have been a sin for him to ask such a thing. If Isaiah had said, the Lord is going to do all this for Israel, for the true faithful remnant of Israel. He's going to rescue Judah from the unfaithful king of Israel. 
And Ahaz had said, well, I need a sign to believe it. That would have been a, a sign of unfaithfulness. When the Lord actually says, I want to prove it to you. I'm going to show you that I'm your God. Ahaz fails the test. He won't listen to the Lord. He's still listening to himself because what he really wants to do is prove how pious he is. Maybe have the people around him see, see, look, Ahaz, we've been complaining. He isn't faithful enough to the Lord, but, but guess what? Guess what about Ahaz? Ahaz doesn't even need a sign when the Lord offers it. That's the sort of thing he's thinking about. And so we see a shift here in the next verse. Because while at the beginning in this invitation, this amazing invitation in verse 11, we hear that he is to ask a sign of the Lord your God, that Ahaz and God have a relationship. We see here in his superficial attempt to seal things up and make them look good, he breaks that relationship. Isaiah says in verse 13, Is it too little for you to weary men that you also that you weary my God also? Ahaz isn't willing to actually relate to God, even when God invites him to. Where are we doing that? Is God inviting you into a deeper relationship with him? And yet you're afraid how people are going to look at you. Is he doing that for me? How are we thinking about the invitations that God gives us? Are we trying to polish out the outside or experience the transforming work of him inside? Because here's the thing, and we see this in the rest of this chapter. Real piety, real righteousness often looks wrong rather than right. And so it doesn't fulfill our human pride and our desire for people to look up to us when we try to do things that we want to frame as being God-pleasing. And that's where we come to some incredibly familiar verses. Let's go ahead and look at verse 14 and following of Isaiah 7. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Seems like a promise about the Messiah, doesn't it? That's where we think of this passage. It's a, it's a promise that, that Jesus is coming. We, we saw it last night when we were looking at Matthew once again. We know that verse, that it goes right there. It's a promise that, that Mary's going to have Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit What's it doing in the middle of a, a potential war in, in two long-departed political entities by the time of Jesus' birth? What, what's it doing as a promise to King Ahaz that, that the Lord is faithful? There's a lot of debate on exactly how all this fits together. And, and even if we only look at the Old Testament for a moment, and we, we forget that it even shows up in Matthew, there's debate on exactly what Isaiah is saying here. But here's what I think might make the most sense if we try to pull all the pieces together. It's something that's going to happen in the time of Ahaz. Ahaz is going to see something, despite his refusal to ask for a sign, that says God is at work. So that's going to happen. And it says that a virgin is going to conceive and have a child. And that, that word there seems to be referring to a young woman who is not yet married who is going to have a baby. So what seems to be happening, the commentators have wrestled with this a lot, but I think perhaps the scenario proposed that makes the most sense is that because of God's faithfulness to Ahaz, that he's going to see those enemies desert, uh, cause their land to be deserted by their unfaithfulness. 
that they're going to come under the crushing power of another enemy. Exactly the thing Ahaz wants. And it's going to happen so soon that someone who isn't yet married, but soon will be married, will have a child in the near future. And when he sees children running around, as the people reflect on God's deliverance from this enemy that they were, were trembling about, they're going to call their children Emmanuel, God with us, that, that he is there, that he has preserved them. That as children are, are just being born and growing up in the near future, and, and Isaiah may have a particular child in mind, but, but in any case, children are going to be born. And, and as people are, are able to go about normal life and, and raise children, they're going to remark about how God is with them. I think that's the base level here. And there is a level that we need to see that this applies to Ahaz. He's going to see something that, that speaks of God's rescue. And so in this, we see these people who, who are going to remark at how God is with them, even as Ahaz, talking directly to God, can't even respond properly to God. But some of the people in the land will. There will be a faithful remnant. These people will say God is with us as they see that he continues to preserve them, allow them to live, allow them to have children, allow things to come together. But in that, even as that's happening, there's something terribly unfortunate that happens. Because in Ahaz's unfaithfulness, while God is going to provide rescue, Ahaz had the opportunity to experience real rescue from this real enemy that he was trembling with, uh, and, and all of the people of, Israel, of Judah were trembling about for free. God wanted to just give him rescue and show him a sign to show that God was at work in it. So that Ahaz knew unmistakably that God was the one doing it. But what did Ahaz want to do instead? He wanted to align himself with the Assyrians, to hire them, and God makes reference in the, the subsequent verses in 17 to 20 of, of how Ahaz wanted to, to make a mercenary of, of Assyria and, and to use them to, to bring about his salvation. And in that, as, as Golden Gay, one of the commentators on this passage, brings up that I think is so astute, he says, Ahaz was hiring a demon barber. That's kind of an interesting phrase, I think. And it really cuts to the chase because what the Lord says in verse 20 is that ultimately Assyria is going to humiliate the Judahites too, not just Israel. Now, we know if we go further into biblical history, Assyria will not conquer Judah, but they will war against Judah. And in doing that, what did people do when they warred against someone and seemed to be gaining power over them? They take the, the weaker kingdom's uh, messengers and they'd They'd shave off their beards. They'd shave their head. They'd make them look ridiculous. Maybe they'd shave half the beard off. And since beards were viewed as something that you grew as you had more wisdom, as you were growing older, it was making a mockery of the people. And God says that's going to happen in verse 20 to the people of Judah. That's coming. It's going to come from the very people that Ahaz wanted to bring into the fight. He was going to bring in what he thought were, were angelic saviors, but they were really demon barbers that were going to cut away the very hair that represented wisdom for his people. And in that, we can see how Ahaz, if he had any self-reflection at all, would hear what Isaiah had told him much earlier. Take a look again at the end of verse 9. The oracle says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This was before Ahaz was called to ask for that sign, right before that. And he had the opportunity. Show your faithfulness by responding to God. Give him the opportunity to prove to you, Ahaz, 
that when rescue comes, when Assyria comes plowing through, they're not coming through because you somehow diplomatically brought them into the picture, but because God is going to use them as a weapon of his judgment. That those who oppose the legitimate king of Judah face God's judgment. But unlike the, the women who or, or woman whose child she reflects on as God with us that was going to come because God was going to preserve at least some life in Judah, Ahaz wasn't willing to trust and see how God was working in this picture. And so he and his household, the, 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 the dynasty of King David would be punished. And we'd see the continued deterioration of that. He had an opportunity to turn in faith, but he turns away in unfaithfulness as he waits. And in that, he would defeat his own goal. He wouldn't experience the earthly success he desired. He wouldn't experience the joy of of being in relationship to God that he desired. But God's plan wouldn't be thwarted. There would be those who would have children in that house. There would be further descendants. There would be those who could remark, God is with us and, and hasn't abandoned us. And because of that, then we see the second fulfillment of this verse. Ahaz was unfaithful. Many of his descendants would be unfaithful. But there would be one who would come who would be the true God with us. And when we think about when Matthew looks back on this passage, as he reflects on this promise uh, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Matthew sees the fullness of this promise. That that God says in the rest of chapter 7, he's not going to allow the people to be totally wiped out. But judgment's going to come. And in that remnant that continues, there will be one someday who will truly be God with us. And as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he realizes this has happened now. Both the, the lesser fulfillment that, that Ahaz could see immediately, that, that the land wasn't wiped out, that as much as he feared Syria and Israel, that something continued happened. But then more happened too. He just wouldn't get to experience the joy and the peace that comes with relating to the Lord about it. What are we looking for? Who are we trying to impress? Ahaz wanted to impress his friends on the international scene, at least those he thought were his friends who turned out to be his enemies. He wanted to have the people look up to him and not to God. These are the sorts of things he wanted. Sometimes, as God is working in our lives, we want people to look at how great we are rather than how God's working in us. Sometimes we don't really want to come to God with something because we want to think that we can handle it on our own. Sometimes we we use little lies that sound really pious to do that. We have these conversations in our head. Well, God wouldn't care about this. God, God doesn't want to deal with little trivial things like this. But that's our pride speaking, saying there's certain things in life that we need to have control of and that we can handle, and we should only bother God with certain things. What does scripture say? Everything is a gift from God. Every blessing is a gift from God. Everything, breath itself is a gift from God. So what should we do when, we, when we're struggling, when we're confused, when we're seeking guidance? We should turn to the Lord. We should turn to him who always calls us to turn to him. That's what we see the faithful, including whomever it is that's initially referred to here as having a child. She looks and sees a son and says, God's with me. God's with us. And later, when the angel Gabriel appears, what does Mary do? She struggles too. She's trying to understand how this works. But unlike Ahaz, she doesn't look with a lack of faith and say, well, you know, this can't be. She instead wants to know how it's going to happen. 
She asks more questions. She wants to have dialogue with the messenger of God. Joseph, in, in his seeking to be faithful, he turns to the law of God and, and sees the heart of God and seeks to live it out. And then as God directs him and redirects him, he continues to seek to live out what God's called him to. He's having a relationship with God. Neither of them are going to look that great in society's eyes. Both of them are going to be looked down upon. Both of them are going to have what appears to be scandal looming over them because they choose to do what is righteous. They don't instead do what seems to create some kind of pious facade. They don't buff the outside of the car. They want God to take all the rust out of the inside. What are we trying to do? I read, and this seems really relevant this time of year, that 40% of Americans spend more money than they have really the, the, the ability to spend in order to impress other people, oftentimes through gift giving. We, we spend that money because we want people to think that we're generous or that we're well off or we're successful. We spend it on, on what we wear. We spend it on how we furnish our houses. We spend it again on gifts. We spend it on all sorts of things to impress people. But here's something that was really striking as I was reading that article. 77% of those in the survey who, who did that who, who overspent to impress people, said they regretted doing so. A full third of them weren't even in touch with the people they were trying to impress anymore. As they're paying off that debt, trying to get out of it, they weren't even talking to the people anymore. And it struck me as I, I read that, it speaks to our condition both in, in, this, in this world that we live in, in, in just normal everyday life, and in our spiritual health. Because what are we doing? Are, are we like Ahaz, where... We want people to look at us and see how impressive we are because we have seemingly affluence. We can spend money and, and impress them. Are we trying to do what's actually healthy and good? Now, sometimes we spend money because we genuinely want to help people, and that's a whole different matter. But this is just about trying to impress people. And I, I believe that Ahaz, in some sense, is spending his spiritual capital in the same way. He has an opportunity to experience a relationship deeper with God, and instead he's worried about What's it going to look like? He puts up a, a seemingly righteous facade. He's giving away an expensive gift, it seems, of pious righteousness, but he's going into deep spiritual debt for it. And we can do the same thing. Where, where God is offering us his free gift of grace, he's calling us to, to, to experience that, to, to recognize that we're sinners that are in desperate need of him, both before we become Christians, that we need to become Christians, and then we need to, to continue to live in that place. And yet we, we start going into deep spiritual debt trying to somehow look like we're in control instead. Because we want to appear to be pious when what God wants is for us to actually be faithful. We not try to impress spiritually any more than we should impress financially. We should seek instead to be faithful because God is with us. That's the promise that Ahaz missed out on fully experiencing but happened right in front of him. And then, in time... Centuries later, God would bring out fully as he came into the world as a baby. And as, as Mary and Joseph had that calling to raise up that baby so that all of us might turn back and see the gospel ministry that happened. That Jesus would come and live and suffer and die for us so that we who, who are also in deep spiritual debt would experience his saving grace. Would you pray with me, please? Father, so often we, we think that we're needing to impress those around us, or maybe even impress ourselves by, by sounding pious, but may we care instead about being truly righteous in your eyes. And the way we do that is to turn to you and to admit that we need you, 
Just as Ahaz needed you, as he needed to turn to you and, and respond as you called him into a deeper relationship with you, may we also respond as you call each of us, that you call us to be those who follow you and that those who, as we follow you, live in your grace and in your strength and in your mercy every single day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you. And if it was tonight, please do like and share this post. It, when you give a like, it tells social media that, that someone appreciated this and maybe it'll show it to someone else. When you actually share it, there's going to be people that we currently can't reach who learn about this ministry and what we're doing here at Little Hills. And more importantly, it's not about building exposure for Little Hills. Uh, my prayer is that we're being faithful to the gospel. And, and if we're doing that, then as you share it, what you're really sharing is the gospel hope that we all have. We're going to be doing more uh, exploration of the gospel over Christmas. And starting, I want to just point out December 9th, that's this Friday, we have Oh Christmas Faith Tree at 7 p.m. It's going to be live streaming and in person. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be joyful. Invite, 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 please. And then get more details at littlehills.church slash Christmas about everything coming up, including Christmas Eve service, devotionals, all kinds of stuff that you want to make sure to be a part of in this coming few weeks before Christmas. Also, we're going to be having pizza after service on Sunday the 18th. Please do let me know if you're planning to come so we can have pizza for you. You, you can leave a comment in the comments tonight and say, I'm coming for pizza. And there will be homemade pizza waiting for you. Or you can shoot me an email for that. Or if you have questions, prayer requests, anything else, free, do feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen. I love getting to pray for you. It's a joy. It's great to hear from you. Of course, you can leave a prayer request in the comments below as well. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I do hope to see you on Friday for a Christmas faith tree, and then, of course, for Sunday and Monday service. Have a blessed week. 